hello and welcome to episode number 428 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's special show we have a look back at another interview from the Jersey International Air Show. We've got an interview with Chris Burwell, our third in the series on that set of interviews and we've also got an interview with Vicky brought to us uh, from Armando. Uh, all the great stuff, as always. But joining me here, well, not here, but live <laughs> in the studio, back over in the PTUK Master Suite Studios, it is, of course, Matt Smith. Hello, hello, hello. This is clever, isn't it? I'm on the Norfolk Broads right now. Are you? I'm currently doing a birthday disco. <laughs> Are you? Oh, very good. Well done. Well done. Yes, yes, yes. It's a very special show today, as I say, because unfortunately we're not uh, we're not able to get together, but we do have a cracking show with loads of fantastic content for you, which we're very much looking forward to sharing with you. Yes, and with us as well this week, as always, is the king of BA, is of course Neville Bounds. Yes, a lot of BA flying this week, I can tell you. Uh, Brussels on Sunday, and then uh, Glasgow. Uh, just coming back uh, today, actually. So, yeah, quite a, quite a hectic schedule and uh, very busy the airports are again as well, which is good to see in, in some respects, I would say. I bet, I bet. It's, as I say, it must be a very... T- uh, I mean, if flying is always one of those glamorous things, isn't it? but when you're literally doing it as part of your job, I mean, it must... I mean, it would wipe me out, Nev, I've got to be honest. I am quite tired, I have to say. <laughs> so. I bet, I bet. But there yeah. we are. That's how it is. All part of the fun. Yeah, it, Nev's gold card will actually be an actual gold <laughs> card very get, soon, yeah. made out of gold. <laughs> <laughs> too right, too right. And uh, joining us uh, back again this week for the show, as always, he's still here. He's he's a he's well, he's feeling a bit windy, but he's not had a night out with <laughs> Captain Al. <laughs> it is of course Armando. What kind of a thing is that to say? <laughs> Uh, thanks for that. I don't know how I feel about that introduction, Carlos, no. but uh, we did, I assume, survive the hurricane uh, here in North Carolina, uh, since we are pre-recording this. But uh, I am also unable to be on the show. I'm actually flying right now from Charlotte down to the Miami area with a client. And uh, he was gracious enough. He was one of my regular clients that he also offered to for uh, Megan to come down. Oh, wow. Miami. So as you're seeing this, we are uh, in South Beach, uh, which did not get hit very hard by the hurricane. But of course, the state of Florida did. But we did fly down and uh, we'll be hanging out and probably pop in the chat room. Oh dear. So so have you got anything planned? It sounds amazing. Have you got anything sort of up your sleeve while you how long are you there for? Oh, we'll be here Friday through Sunday. And uh, so flying on flying down on Friday night, probably go out South Beach, uh, experience the culture there and then uh, just kind of hang out, explore the area Saturday and then and then back on Sunday. So honestly, it's just honestly, I do you know, I get exhausted listening to both Armando and Nev with their various lives of and producer John. Every time I was like, oh, I'm 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 in this part of the world today or I'm over here or, uh, you know, you know, Nev is in Glasgow for the third time this month or or whatever. I'm just exhausted listening to it all, honestly. uh, I'm right there with you. We actually said for the rest of this year and maybe even next year, we're going to slow down a little bit on the vacations and the trips and whatnot. Uh, Fun though, isn't it? It is fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Flying is always fun. It's always fun flying. 
indeed. Except in those conditions that you're experiencing there, Carl. <laughs> I know, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's very, very brave of you to sit there and like. <laughs> the, the, the storm moved over from the states and come here. This is our back garden. That's right. Our okay. Tree there. I it's must a, admit, I don't remember the palm trees in your garden. I must. I must be honest. <laughs> no, no, they, they've been hidden. <laughs> okay, and I, and I didn't realise you had windscreen wipers on your window behind you. But other than that, it's all it's all it's all good. Technology is uh, so good. He says trying to describe a visual Amazing. representation on an audio podcast. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> so, what have we got to come first on the show this week? Well, we have got a very special uh, interview indeed, haven't we, Nev? So, uh, Nev, where were we? Well, what was it? Three, four weeks ago. It's, it was, isn't it? Yes, it, time has flown somewhat. Well, we were at the reception, of course, for the Jersey, Jersey International Air Display uh, on the night before. And so Carlos got a chance to talk to Chuck, who was one of the pilots on the OV-10 Bronco, a very iconic aircraft, if ever there was one. And not only did we get the chance to talk to Chuck... Uh, the pilot, but then Jonathan from Swissport very kindly got us airside access <gasps> over to the airport in Jersey itself, where Chuck uh, gave us a tour of the aircraft. And right at the end of the interview, we managed to squeeze Carlos into the cockpit. <laughs> I uh, can't wait for this. Where he tell us, tells us what all the switches do. Did he? Oh, so let's first get, go back to the marquee, though. Uh, where Carlos is talking to Chuck. So we're here at uh, the Jersey International Air Display 2022 and uh, I've been joined by Chuck who flies the AB10 Bronco. So Chuck, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Sir. Thank you for, uh, yeah. for coming over. And uh, so Chuck, tell me a bit about the aircraft you fly. Uh, so the Bronco belongs to the European Fighter Museum in Montélimar, France. It's one of the biggest museum uh, in France. It specializes in uh, fighting aircraft. We have 75 aircraft explosives and a lot of uh, uh, small aircraft and something like that. And this Bronco was an OV-10B, ex-German force. And before, it was really an OV-10A, made in 79, in 69. Uh, and, but it didn't came to, to Vietnam, and after it was um, changed to OV-10B and sold to the German Air Force. So is that two seat or one one seat or two seat? And it's two seat, but there only one stick in front seat. Uh, okay. yeah, so it's because uh, for the use of German, the rear seat was uh, not uh, in place because they had the um, the tray to 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 the target and but it's an amazing aircraft. <laughs> it looks amazing. Yeah. It looks, looks stunning. I've seen the pictures of, of the aircraft you fly yeah. on the Jersey, uh, the website for the air show. Look, I'm looking forward to seeing it tomorrow. Yeah. It's got a good, a different, a sort of different paint colour. Yeah. yeah. So at the beginning it was uh, uh, green like uh, Luftwaffe, but we, we changed it in, uh, I think, in uh, 2015. <clears throat> and we chose the colour shape of uh, Desert Storm. And it's an amazing coral because it's only one flying in the world. Okay, remember that there is only 20, 25 Bronco flying in the world, especially two in Europe, one in uh, Belgium, but is making a lot of uh, air show in uh, UK, and our Bronco, <laughs> and we make all Europe. Uh, for example, this year we made uh, the first meeting was in uh, Piestani in Slovakia for a huge air show, night air show, 
because we have uh, an accreditation from uh, civilian authorities French to make air show in night with pyrotechnics and a flashlight. And we make uh, Poland uh, in uh, Lesno, we make a lot of uh, air show in France. Uh, we were last week we were in um, Cambrai uh, for the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of uh, 112 Squadron, which was my squadron, okay, and now it's closed, but it was one of the creators of the NATO Tiger Squadron. So a bit about the aircraft, speed, so what, what's the kind of speed that you fly the Bronco? What I can tell you, it's a Swiss knife, you know, a Swiss wow. knife. It's only aircraft able to do everything. So for the speed, we uh, land at 40 knots, 40, 40 knots, 40, wow. 50, and maximum speed is 350. Normal speed, it's about, uh, for cruise, it's about 200 spe- uh, knots, okay? And for the activity, for the, uh, all we can do with that aircraft, it's only a craft, uh, we have two MTOV, maximum takeoff weight, uh, with one for the field, grass field, and one for the hard field, okay? And uh, is able to go in uh, air carrier without a resting cable, take off without t- catapult. We have a cargo. We can put uh, 1.4 uh, ton inside. 1.4 tons? Yeah. Wow. We can put two stretchers with a doctor. Uh, American way used to, to put five parachutists, uh, six uh, troopmen. Um, undercarriage, the, it was uh, possible to make a, gun, um, a gatling okay, with okay. all the ammo inside. Okay, it can carry every weapon, side window, uh, uh, bomb, uh, laser, everything. It's an, an amazing aircraft. So, a, a bit about your your history, Chuck. Where, yeah. where did flying begin for you? Know, for me, I'm a, a pure product of a flying club. So it's important for young people to go in flying club to make gliding or aircraft, and I'm pure product. And after uh, I made my study in uh, Toulouse, in southwest, uh, it's a city of aeronautics, huh, with Airbus or something like that, I, I made my uh, engineer um, license, okay? And after I joined the Air Force, and I was fighter aircraft in uh, air defense on Mirage F1 and Mirage 2000 in Cambrai, in North of France, okay? And after, when I was retired, I make, uh, um, I made, pardon, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, uh, ATPL with on uh, ATR. I was uh, oh, ATR. yeah, I was captain on ATR. But also oh, I make business jet. Uh, what, what business jet did you, uh, you fly? Yeah, I flew on uh, uh, Beach 90, oh, Beach 200, Beach 350, and last. Last year I was uh, captain on uh, Citation. Oh, Citation. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's your favourite? Uh, Bronco. The Bronco? Oh, the Bronco's <laughs> a favourite. <laughs> it's an amazing aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, when, when did you um, sort of, when did you first fly? I mean, did, was, it, was it as a teenager? I was 14. 14. Because the limit in France is 14. Okay. To begin in, in glider. Okay? And to be uh, to 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 be uh, to make solo flight is 14. So I began just. I'm living in South France. You know D'Artagnan, 
Yes, I living in the place of D'Artagnan, so in southwest of France. Oh, okay. okay, and uh, I'm uh, just uh, at the far end of the runway of Nogaro. So every day I was looking for the glider towed by an aircraft. So my neighbor was a mechanic, and he said, uh, "Okay, because Chuck is my nickname, really, and my name is yeah, Jean-Luc." He said, "Come to 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 make glide." So, for the for a lot of in the UK, especially in the UK, we all know that learning to fly is yeah. is incredibly expensive. It costs a lot of money. Is that the same over uh, in France? It's not really the same because uh, 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 it's uh, association. It's non-benefit uh, uh, association. So. I can tell you that in South of France, I'm flying instructor in flying club. It's, it's important to, 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 to study the, the, the young people because one day I will stop my, uh, to, to, to pilot and we need some engineer, mechanics, pilot, fighter pilot, everything. So uh, in France, I think that uh, for the hour, the price is nearly 130. Uh, 130, 130 euros uh, by flight. Because it's non-benefit association. I think that in England it's a uh, society. It's not really the same. Yeah, the flight yeah. flying schools in the UK tend to, for a Cessna 150, mm. for an hour, 170, 180 yeah. pounds sterling. So... It's, yeah. yeah, it's 160 or, or 50 uh, euro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the same. Just for an hour. Yeah, but uh, in, in the history of France, in the aeronautics, uh, all people began by, uh, by the flying club. Okay, my, my, grandfather, my grandfather died in uh, 44. It was a, a, a pilot and uh, it was a former in a fighting school. It was a young club, uh, a small club. Where the, the, the students were learning to, 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 to fly and to, to go to the combat. Okay, so I think it's important and uh, it's why the, the ex, it's not so expensive. So if you, if you had advice for young people who want to fly, you'd say gliding first? Yeah, gliding first. Yeah. I began by gliding. It's not expensive. Uh, and begin by glider, make. 100, 200, 300, it's not expensive. And after, uh, pass to, 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 uh, to the aircraft, it's more expensive. Okay. Especially at that time, the, the price of the, the petrol. So, tomorrow you're displaying yeah. here. What, could we, could we, do we know what, what kind of display you're going to be uh, Alors, doing? For my display, I, I use a Bronco uh, uh, as it was built for. It's a um, uh, ground attack aircraft, uh, so it's an aircraft made to, to fly in the trees. <laughs> in the Bay of St. Elias, not possible because there is no, no trees. Okay, but it's only it's gun attack, bomb, bombing, um, something like that. It's not vertical vertical uh, maneuver because it's not made for, for yeah. that. And. Uh, for us, we want to preserve the Bronco, so we don't take any. Uh, uh, we don't make any maneuver will be dangerous for the safety of the pilot yeah. and for the aircraft. Okay. 
So you, have you been, I mean, obviously you're here at Jersey this, this or tomorrow. Have you had a busy year? Because obviously things have been very quiet for the air show. It's been very quiet. Have you had a busy 2022? Yeah. Has it been busy for you? Oh, yeah. <coughs> oh, yeah. Especially for the, because it's anniversary also for the Bronco. Yeah. We made air show in all Europe. We went to the Ukraine uh, and uh, to Morocco. Okay. The Bronco is a special aircraft. Every year, we have a lot of uh, requests to, to be here, here, and sometimes we have to say, no, it's not possible because uh, we are here. And especially for our Bronco, because we, have, uh, we can do the uh, day display, sunset display, and last Monday, it's a scoop, last Monday, we dropped uh, parachutist, and it was in France the first time that the fighter aircraft dropped parachutist. Wow. Because we didn't, didn't have the, the vector in France. So we dropped the ambassador, uh, parachutist ambassador of French Air Force. And next year, we will be able, with accreditation from our authorities, to drop four parachutists. Okay? So we can do a lot of things. And um, this year we made about, uh, it's not fishing, finished because September is yeah. the beginning, it will be about 25 uh, air shows in uh, all Europe. Wow. Okay. In France, just behind the um, Patrouille de France and uh, uh, Rafale, uh, we have the private aircraft who make uh, the most uh, air show in Europe. It's brilliant. Well, it's great. Obviously you do, you do a good job. You must very popular <laughs> yeah, the, sure, uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get you for Nev's birthday party yeah. But yeah. we hope that next year we hope uh, if uh, guys listen uh, to my speech we, we, we want to, to, to come in England but best is to make two weekends because it's expensive to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the price is it's not expensive but the fuel is yeah. expensive and the, 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 the price uh, is the travel to make the travel between Montélimar and UK and to go back is expensive. So we can share with two uh, air shows, with two weekends, and it, it will be lower for the organizer. Hopefully then, yeah, we'll we see hope. you yeah. Yeah. We hope to, to be, especially because it's not the same as the other Bronco, with green. This one is a, a desert cover, that is really fine. So, one final question for you, Chuck. Yeah? And we ask this question to every yeah. pilot we speak to on the show. If, if you could go outside now to the airfield at Jersey yeah. Yeah, and jump into any aircraft, military, commercial, yeah. GA, ret- retired or still flying or, yeah. or, or uh, you know, retired, you know the what, what would you be? What would it be? Yeah, sure. You're going to say Bronco. I, I flew on a lot of aircraft, Mirage F1, Mirage 2000. I was a French director in uh, Alpha Jet. I was captain on, in ATR. I flew on Flying Club, on uh, the, uh, the R400, uh, Piper. So. Really, Bronco is The a, Bronco holds uh, a special... Yeah, it's an amazing aircraft. Yeah. yeah sure. Well, there we go. Well, Chuck, thanks for, yes. thanks for talking to yes. us this evening. It's been lovely to speak to you. Yeah. And, um, where can our listeners go if they want to find out more information yeah. about what you do? Where, yeah. where can they go? You, you can go to the uh, website of the museum. It's uh, www.meacmtl.com. 
dot, uh, point com, sorry, uh, you, uh, musée européen de l'aviation de chasse. Okay? If you find on Google, you will find the website and you, you can see all the aircrafts that uh, were exposed in, uh, in our museum. Okay? We'll put that link yeah. with okay. this. Yeah. And yeah. if you go uh, south for holidays, because there is a lot of English person, stop to Montélimar. It's in the airfield of Montélimar and Con. Uh, there is a, a t- uh, turn, okay? there is a mirror street to sit. Indicating the the the, 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 the um, way to go to the museum. There we go. So you heard it here. Well, Chuck, thanks again for thank joining you. us. Thanks it's been lovely to speak to you, and thank I'm you. sure the listeners will love to yeah. uh, to hear about it. So thanks for coming, and let's uh, have a great show tomorrow. Yeah, fine. Thank you. We hope the weather will be good. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you. We're back at the uh, Jersey Airport here. We're, we're lucky enough to get uh, airside access. I'm back with Chuck, and we're actually with the aircraft itself, the Bronco. Chuck, welcome back. Yeah. It's great to be here yeah, and sure. see the yeah, aircraft well up close. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about uh, what's going on in here. This, this yeah. looks like a cargo area. Yeah, this, this cargo. Uh, it, it's why I, I was telling you uh, that it's a Swiss knife because it is able to, to do everything. And inside... We can put 1.4 ton, okay? And the uh, Americans were used to, to put five paratroops, and they were picking out the ejection seat from the rear part and all the, um, uh, the avionics, okay? Because in the VTNA, it was not uh, canopy with plexiglass, it was full, okay? And uh, there were no passengers inside. For us, we put one passenger, it's our mechanics. <laughs> we don't punish it, huh? it's <laughs> because there is only two places in front, okay? And for us, we will put four paratroops, okay? And it's why you were asking me, the float is very, uh, the, the, uh, the floor is very- uh, Very clean, very, very shiny. clean yeah. and shining. And we put a, a box to preserve the avionics, and it's better for the first paratroops uh, with its, its parachute. So it's clean and it can't. Uh, uh, it's not possible that something uh, hurts uh, the parachute safety. Okay. Yeah. Hence, is that why the yeah, the perspex, I don't know. yeah. Normally, uh, the American was making wood, full wood, uh, contreplaqué. Sorry, I don't know the term. And we, we put plexiglass, but because for us it's easier to see all the cables and something like that. It's not necessary to take it out. Okay. As we make check every flight. Uh, to check the cable because all the cable of uh, the, the um, uh, direction and the elevator are passing là, here, okay? And also all the command of the flaps are passing here in the, in the uh, cellule, in the um, cellule of the, the aircraft. So are the flaps cable or, or uh, rods? Most part is cable, okay? Yeah. But sometimes we have uh, um, uh, iron, not iron. Uh, I don't know. So, so we tube. Oh, so tube yeah, yeah. Okay. But more pass ninety percent is cable, because for the the uh, elevator, the stick is passing here, passing here, passing in the move, in the boom. That part of the aircraft we call that a boom. Okay. And climbing here and passing on the elevator. Wow. Say the emblem on the on the back there, the European Fighter Museum. That's a special. I know is that special only for for this uh, for this year because it's the 25th anniversary. Like the Jersey I show with Mike Higgins, it's where 
I showed you yesterday, we have yeah. a special patch. And as you, you can see, it's nearly the same patch for Jersey and for the museum. And outside, and there is also the website of the museum, www.meacntlm.com, okay? Since 1997, 25 years, and outside, there is a special uh, decoration for the the last meeting we made in Cambria with the tiger and nougat. You know that as the Bronco is coming from Montelimar and the speciality of Montelimar, it's a candy, it's nougat. Okay, that's nougat, why yeah. the, the, the tiger was normally uh, taking a, a ball of rugby, was playing rugby, and we replaced it by a, a piece of nougat. <laughs> uh, I saw the website, I saw, did see the website, uh, I looked, looked last okay. night, yeah. It's very, it's very good. It's, I'm going to have to make a, a trip yeah. To, to come over and see the website. Um, but so in the back here, you've got some foot pedals there. Is that so? Yes. For the, the, for the, for the rest of the mechanics, he can put his, <laughs> his foot. He put his feet. No, no, it's not. A, it's just a, to put because it's, um, uh, it's fragile. Yeah. Okay. It's wood with, with plexiglass. glass. It's wood. Okay. Yeah. And there is only two, uh, uh, two balls to, to take it. I expect it's a nice view. Yeah, when yeah, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting here, especially from... because if you look here, it's camouflage, it's a cover, but you can see outside. From the other side, we yeah. make it that. Be careful, you. We make it that uh, to to respect the cover of the aircraft. With this cover, is a desert storm, because not that one, but uh, the Bronco made desert storm from the air carrier. Okay, and American guys lose uh, two uh, two aircraft. One uh, crew was uh, killed and there was one eject. It was prisoner of the Ricky guys. So how, comf how comfortable is it on the flight deck in the, in the, in the seat, pilot seat? How is it comfortable? Yeah, Lots very of room. sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you sit here like that, so the view is perfect. Yeah, yeah. Okay? I propose you to, to go in front. Okay? <laughs> to, okay. <laughs> So I've um, uh, been very lucky indeed to come on board on the flight deck here of the Bronco. Chuck's very kindly uh, given me access to the, uh, the, the front seat, which I must say was quite the effort to get into. Um, I just about survived, but uh, it's amazing sitting here. The, 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 I can't express the, the amount of view that you've got here on the, on the flight deck, the, the actual pilot's vision. It's fantastic. Great massive windows that you can see on the side here. Everything is very, very open. Obviously lots of steam gauges, lots and lots of steam gauges. Um, undercarriage gear and the gear control here. You've got throttle controls just on my left here. And your feathering controls for the props and fuel shutoff valves just on here. Um, but as you can probably see, Nev's uh, got the camera here in a good position. You can see there is no um, Garmin um, sat-navs. In fact, we have got here your old school uh, map for finding out where you are. But one thing I will say, plenty of air vents for letting the air in, because I'd, I'd imagine this is quite the greenhouse to be flying in when you're uh, in, in the aircraft. Single stick in the centre here, like control stick, you can probably see. And... Yeah, it's actually quite roomy. It is very roomy. Uh, rear view mirror, which is always handy, and there is a seat behind me as well. But um, very nice. Very, I feel very lucky indeed to um, 
they've been given the opportunity to come and uh, come and sit on here. So uh, from me, Carlos here on the Bronco, back to you in the studio. So what uh, you didn't really get to see really was just how how easy it was to get in and out of that Bronco. No. <laughs> I, mean, I don't I, believe you. <laughs> uh, I, 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 there's one of those times, you know, when, when you really wish you'd have at least four or five cameras placed all around. Really? So how how really easy it was to get in and get well, out I, of I that I have Bronco. actually got a bit of footage of that as a separate oh. piece, so I, I might uh, play that out on a future episode. Oh, lovely. Please. Oh, we'll look forward to that the following week, shall we? We'll look forward to that next week, shall we? Now, please, if yeah, you wouldn't mind. <laughs> but weren't, weren't we lucky to uh, have that exclusive yeah. access? Incredible. Um, quite a bit of form filling out, quite a lot of uh, security passes and all that. Yeah, we had to go through security as well. Did you? It was, yeah. it was worth, well it, worth it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Gosh, yeah. And, uh, and of course, uh, as we, uh, you might have heard a bit of noise there from a landing jet. That was Alan Sugar's uh, jet. Oh, was it? It was, yeah. During the, uh, the interview. Oh, there. lovely. Did he buy, did he buy you a beer? Him, I, thought. I, I, I thought he could have at least have waited until we'd, uh, you know, he could have finished held off filming. Yes, yeah. whilst we've just finished the interview. But, yeah. <laughs> rude. Yeah. yeah, He didn't buy you a drink, drink then? Uh, no. <laughs> How rude. Oh, well. So. Coming up next on the show, and um, the third part of a very special I'm series. very concerned about the aircraft behind you, by the way, Carl. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some Your chair has grown wings. It's quite worrying. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> so, uh, Nev, uh, this third part of the story, so just uh, fill us in in case uh, the listeners uh, don't know what's yeah, going on. Yeah, of course. Well, we've uh, very kindly subcontracted our some of our interviewing uh, to uh, Captain Nick Anderson, and uh, Nick was interviewing Chris Burwell, who's written this book called Nine Lives. It's a fascinating tale of Chris's time in the RAF and, and really enjoyable. Uh, Chris has very kindly signed this book for us. So at the end of the whole series, uh, which is six parts long, so we're just going to be showing part three in a second, uh, we'll be uh, doing a quiz where you can win this book that Chris has written. It's a, it's a great read. Um, so uh, this is the part of the uh, interview where Nick is talking to Chris about his time down in the Falklands. Um, like myself, you missed out on the opportunity to serve during the Falkland War. Mm. I guess having a heavily pregnant wife at home would have been far from ideal, but weren't you a bit disappointed? In a way, yes, Nick. Um, yeah, I used to wake up every morning, listen to the news about what had happened in the Falklands and think I should be down there. But then I think this is not a good time family-wise. Um, so it's, it's always a trade-off. And to be honest, it was... It, by then I was in Germany, of course. It was one squadron at Wittering, my old squadron that were down in the South Atlantic. And we just sent a few reinforcement pilots to go and help out the Navy and one squadron as well. And yes, I was very suitably qualified with my one squadron time. And uh, in some ways I should have gone down. But as I subsequently found out, my, my squadron commander had blocked my going down anyway. So. I think he's a fine chap and I'm sure your wife would agree. Um, you mentioned a little tension between the Navy and the RAF pilots serving mm. aboard mm. the carriers that I wasn't aware of. Do you think you could expand on that a little without embarrassing yourself? Uh, I won't embarrass myself. I may <laughs> say something that might annoy a few other people. I think, um, I think people need to read Pete Squire on this. You know, um, Air Chief Marshal Sir Peter Squire, who's now dead, sadly, uh, wrote very well about this in the Harrier Boys uh, Volume 1 about the South Atlantic and Operation Corporate. 
he gives a very clear and very candid view of his view, a, a, a very candid view of what went on in the, in the South Atlantic, particularly with respect to the interrelationship between air and uh, the ship drivers on the carriers, whereas the, the, the Navy seemed to have a view about how they would operate aircraft which didn't go hand in glove with the Royal Air Force's way. And uh, it seemed rather as though air became very secondary to what the ship was doing. And I think that caused a lot of angst and a lot of difficulty. And uh, I, th I think it's, it's very unfortunate because um, it should have been a much more cohesive uh, operation. And I think from that we probably learnt a lot as well. And we moved on from that and things now are much more cohesive between the three services. Yeah. During, you, you mentioned you led a deployment out to the Falklands after the war, mm. um, and uh, you mentioned that you felt the need to, I found it quite amusing, restrict your pilots from watching videos during the day <laughs> when they were otherwise occupied. Mm. Uh, for my many hours spent whiling away the time on QRA, yes. uh, yeah. I remember the video machine being a godsend. Uh, I'm curious why you wanted to lay down those restrictions when perhaps other detachments didn't. Okay, I think the air defence world, which you're alluding to, obviously, is different because they had a Q, QRA requirement 24 hours a day. We didn't, okay? So that in the evening, we could switch off and just say, the phantoms at the other end of the airfield are looking after Q, so we're off the hook, so we could get together. And I think part of being on detachment is that you actually try and build some spirit and some morale because you're 8,000 miles away from home, uh, it can get difficult, and if people form little cliques and start doing their own thing, it can be quite corrosive, especially in a small uh, operation like the Harrier flight, because when we're talking about the officers, I would have like seven pilots down there. I would have a, an army major, a ground liaison officer, I'd have one engineering officer, and that would be it, so there'd be about nine officers. Okay. Now, you don't really want cliques appearing, yeah, and I don't want to get into what's happening with the Red Arrows at the moment, but you actually want to keep the guys together and do some team building. And I think if you're there for three months, the least you can do is actually, if you want to watch a film, we'll all watch a film together. What are we going to watch, guys? You know, let's have a beer, watch a film together, and it's a social occasion. And what you don't want is somebody deciding they're going to watch a film, a couple of guys sit down at five o'clock in the afternoon, start watching a film, and then other guys want to watch one at 6.30, but they're watching and they're halfway through, and then you say, oh, well, you know. So I discussed it with the guys, and we said, right, no, what we'll do is we'll all have tea, then we'll all get together, we'll have a film every evening at 7 o'clock. And it's, it's a sort of team-building thing. Sure. And if you allow people to just watch films during the day, and again, I'm not having a swipe at the, the Q guys, because, you know, they've got time to kill, and they need to entertain themselves. But... If you've got a job to do during the day, and we, we were flying, but we also had other things to do, if you allow people just to laze around in the crew room all day, they will just watch films and while away their time and do nothing useful. Yeah, yeah. We, As you we, well know. We would, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, losing a Harrier during your short time in the Falklands must have been a blow. What did the Board of Inquiry have to say about that? Um, well, I lost two, actually, because I was in the Falklands twice, and both times I lost aircraft. The first one was Mark Leakey, uh, who's my number two, and that was a straightforward engine failure. Off the top of my head, I can't honestly remember what the cause of that was, but it was, it was 
one of those Harrier engine failures, probably similar to mine. It may well have been FOD, but for a fact, I can't remember at the moment. The more interesting aspect of that accident was that uh, Mark had a lot of trouble getting into his dinghy. Now, we used to do a lot of training for this every year about finishing up in the water, how to get into your dinghy and all that sort of thing. And of course, the... the um, preaching was if the parachute came down over the top of you then you just found a seam worked your way along the seam to get out from underneath the parachute I remember and it then well. get yeah. into your dinghy you know we were all told that's what you do so that's exactly what happened to mark because it was absolutely still there was no wind at all he finished up in the water uh, with the parachute coming down right on the top of him he worked his way along, got himself out from underneath the parachute canopy, by which time his legs were all caught up in the rigging lines. And then he couldn't get into the dinghy because he was, his legs were all caught up and he had the weight and he couldn't manoeuvre his legs and all that sort of thing. So he finished up half in and half out of his dinghy, completely exhausted. Now, it wouldn't have been too bad if the helicopter had come because the helicopter was only based about a mile from where he, uh, he landed. But unfortunately, the helicopter was being worked on at the time because though we'd started flying, nobody had told them. So the helicopter was in pieces that was supposed to be on standby for our flying operations. We launched, and uh, by the time Mark ejected, which was like only 10 minutes after we'd launched, after we'd done the weather check, the aircraft still wasn't able to fly. So they had finished up hurriedly, putting it back together again, eventually got airborne, came out, found Mark, cut him free of his rigging lines, and got him in the helicopter and flew him away. Had so. he become hypothermic? No, he, no, I don't think so. He hadn't been in the water that long. And of course, he got an immersion suit on. He got all the right under, under clothes on and everything. So I think he was okay. He was just very, very tired at that point. Interesting, yeah. You don't mention the Phantom Chaps, uh, who were also in the Falklands match. Did you guys mix at all? Uh, well, professionally or socially? Or socially, yeah. Socially? Well, yeah. actually both, yeah. Um, that's a very good point, actually, Nick. We didn't mix socially that much. We worked with them quite closely every day. You know, we, we do flying operations, which would involve them. Socially, we didn't mix that much, as I remember. Um, Interesting. Because there, there weren't very many pilots on the whole place, and you're the only yeah. two fighters yeah. out there. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. Looking back on it, I, I think perhaps... Perhaps they were doing this queue bit, so they were spending a lot of time on queue, and when they weren't on queue, they, were down, they had downtime to recover and do whatever they did, and so on. Um, what I do remember, certainly from my first detachment, first detachment, or second detachment, I must say, we actually got on very well with the Bristow's helicopter guys, oh. and we used to do quite a lot of socialising with them, and they had uh, a house in town, where they all lived, and they used to have an open evening, I think it was every Wednesday night, so we used to go and socialise with those guys. Um, so, Phantom guys, not particularly, to be honest. And I can't think of any particular reason for that. It just didn't You just said like Phantom pilots, I well, can tell. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But um, when, we were, when we were down at the Coastal, which is where we lived, um, this floating hotel that was down there, yeah, you'd have a beer with the guys down there, but it wasn't like we actually had social events with them as such. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Um, you appeared to enjoy your return to the Falklands, but lost another Harrier, mm. you've already mm. mentioned, mm. and nearly the pilot as well. Yeah. Uh, was it just a coincidence, or were the accident rates there higher than in Germany? 
Um, it was just a coincidence. I don't think there was anything particular about it. Um, the second accident was, again, an engine failure, but that was caused by bird um, being taken down. Uh, very, uh, the aircraft was travelling at very high speed and very low level at the time, approaching, just coming onto the airfield boundary, actually, uh, on a simulated attack. So that's, that's just a normal operating hazard. It goes back to your point about one engine or two engines. Yeah. Unfortunately, that was a big bird and it did a lot of damage. And Ian Wilkes, the pilot, had no option but to get out of the aircraft very quickly. Mm. Now, your return to Germany, of course, involved several field deployments, sometimes mm. with much excitement, I read. Mm. Did you ever resent having to spend so much time under canvas, or albeit with the occasional ice cream van visit? <laughs> Uh, it did become a bit of a pain, to be honest, yes. And you must also, also, I would also say that we carried on doing these field deployments while we were supporting the South Atlantic as well. So yeah. it was a very demanding time, and I think you can relate to this from your own time in the military, that when something crops up like, albeit post the Falklands War, we're still supporting the Falklands effort down there you're still doing your day job back at home, which is providing a presence in the central region to make sure that the Soviets are aware that we're still there and we're still fully trained. And so I think I did three field deployments every year that I was in Germany. They tended to be two-week deployments. The winter one was only one week. We only put one field site out in the winter just to prove the concept. Um, and I say that advisedly because it was pretty bloody miserable to be honest uh, every year I finished up commanding the field site that went out in the middle of winter the temperature at night generally and this is no exaggeration we get down to minus 10 minus 14 degrees at night every year I went out and we had our normal camping gear um, 12 by 12 tents the only thing we did was we took the second sleeping bag out with us. So we were on camp beds. You tended to be in two sleeping bags. But it was pretty blooming miserable, to mm. be honest. But we could do it. We did it. Uh, it was not nice, but we proved that you could take the aircraft out into a bare base and operate in the middle of winter. I'm now in my mind thinking poor sleeping patterns because of the conditions, operating in the field where flight safety... Um, problems yeah. must rear their ugly head, tired air crew. Um, was there any mitigation of those threats? No, no, we just did it. Um, and that, that's the thing, you know, you, you're going to have an aircraft like the Harrier, it's not easy to operate it when you take it off base. Yeah. And it's not just us, it's the engineers as well that have yeah, to keep the thing serviceable. All it's, the engineering uh, was done in open yeah. air? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, my my very last winter deployment uh, on the Friday afternoon, we're all looking forward hugely to getting back to base that afternoon. One of the aircraft landed with an engine problem. And uh, I, th I think it, in all honesty, it was probably picked up after the aircraft had landed. And it was an engine change, Friday afternoon. And, it, oh, no. and I'm the site commander. So I went, right, everybody else clear the site. And what they called the, the field repair team was called out from Guttersloe. So these are the guys that are on standby with another engine and they come out to do major problems out in the field. So these guys were called out on a Friday afternoon. So we cleared the whole site. So all the other aircraft went. Um, most of the engineers went. We kept a few to help the field repair team. 
Uh, we'd had some rations. I don't think we kept the caterers behind, but we, we just kept the bare minimum of people. And then the field repair team came along and they arrived late afternoon with another engine for this thing. And of course they then had the crane, they had to lift the wing off, uh, take the engine out, engine back in, wing what, back what on. What a job. They're all done in eight hours. Good <laughs> yeah. There's Friday afternoon yeah. motivation so, for you. <laughs> it was amazing. And you know, so we were there sort of sitting around in a tent. We probably went for a beer, I can't really remember. But you know, the field repair team by early morning had got the aircraft sorted out, they'd done a ground run, everything was okay, and I was there to fly it out. I was the only pilot, I just stayed behind myself as site commander, and I was going to fly it out. A very interesting um, little follow up to that because when I went to fly the aircraft out the next day, there were three little switches down in the cockpit here. And I can't for the life of me remember what the three did because we never touched them. They had nothing to do with the pilots at all. And one of them was to limit the RPM available for, for ground runs. And we always checked those whenever we got in. And they were, they were quite important. So they, they were gate locked. So there was a bar over them and a screw in. So once they were locked, they weren't going to shake loose or anything like that. And as usual, I just climbed up, started doing my checks, went there. And one of those was switched off. Oh, naughty. And I switched it back on, screwed it in. And if I'd tried taking off, I would have had restricted RPM. Oh. I would only have got about 90%, if I remember right. That would right. not have been funny. Wouldn't have been funny, no. Right. Having said, I might have got away with it. But of course, what we did was, on every field takeoff, you slammed to full power and you just glued on the RPM gauge while you're trying to keep straight as well. But you glued on the RPM gauge. And if there was any issue with the RPM just not going straight up to 100 plus percent, you just slammed the throttle closed. So I think I probably got away with it anyway. Yeah, I mean, you don't really want to put yourself in that position to start no, with. No. Oh, guys, this uh, this interview series is is amazing, and uh, I personally like it because it's all got all the military content, which is really what everybody listens to this show for. Oh, so, here we Nev, go. I appreciate I appreciate you taking one for the team and sitting in there and producing. <laughs> this uh this series while <laughs> well i think well, I, I think a prerequisite of these interviews should be that we uh, the interviewer uh, and the uh, technical staff get uh, lunch uh, and and we did as well so uh, chris uh, organized a very nice lunch for us at his house which was very very tasty i must say we enjoyed that uh, considerably but uh, really really great stuff and of course we've got part four coming up next week as well very good. Well, there you there you go. You heard it first. Uh, basically, that the military produces as nice of a uh, client experience as as British Airways uh, Club oh, Lounge dear. or whatever it is that you. No. Um, let let it go, Armando. Let it go. I will You're not going to win. I will convert you. I will convert you one day. It's so amusing, isn't it? That that that, that, that Nev, our you know resident person who who's not extremely excited about military stuff. <laughs> In all the interview series that we've done on this show, and we have done quite a few now, mm-hmm. with military experts and people from, from within that uh, part of aviation, Nev, you always do such a good job. Well, the reason I like uh, being in the same room as a former military person is because, as always, they've got tremendous stories Mm. to tell. And I think it's absolutely fascinating as someone like me, a complete amateur uh, that, you know, doesn't really understand the military and and how it works. Um, Just listening to these guys and girls uh, talking. And, uh, of course, uh, Nick's interview, of course, is, is ideal as well, because unlike some of the mainstream media, he lets the interviewee talk. 
Oh, how refreshing. <laughs> short questions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that goes a long way, I think, to getting the whole thing across. I, I really enjoy uh, making these with Nick. It's, it's a great experience, it really is. And, of course, he's, he's asking the right questions as well, isn't he? Because, of course, his background is also in military, albeit, you know, some, some years ago. Um, but, you know, you, you, you still have that knowledge on board, don't you? So you, you can almost sort of preempt the right questions to, to ask, if you like, to get the best out of the interviewer. Yeah, very yeah. much so. And, 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 you know, Nick, Nick knows exactly which buttons to press yeah. uh, and which, which questions to ask, I think. Yeah. I, I know we laugh about it, Ned, but would you say over the, you know, the last two or three years of doing these kind of things with Nick, would you say you, you, you're, you're now finding it more... Well, Enjoy the groove, as it were. Uh, and no, I, I, I am interested in, in yeah. listening to, you know, what these guys and, and girls yeah. have, have gone through. Absolutely. Mm. Especially, you know, um, the other week when um, Chris is talking about, you know, ejecting from oh. this aircraft as well. It's, it's a, you know, it's a hell yeah. of a thing to do just to get a, a tie, isn't it? But, you know, um, I, I, th I think that... Um, especially men and women that have served in the forces, uh, being able to tell their story to someone like Nick who really appreciates it. And, of course, in many cases, he was actually there in, in, yeah. in the environment himself. I think it's a great, uh, great story. So I, I find that very interesting, I must say. Um, so mm. I, I, I'm joking slightly when <laughs> I say I don't find military interesting. I suppose that the main problem I have is that I just cannot easily identify no. aircraft. I find that no. very difficult indeed. It is uh, literally a different language. Commercial. Isn't it? <laughs> it's, I find mm. that pretty mm. straightforward, yeah. yeah. Armando, I've got a question well, for you, actually, if I may. Go on. Yes, sir. Have you ever had to? Have you have you ever been involved in in, in an ejection um, situation? Well, from an osprey? No. Well, I don't know. Uh, that's called a minced meat pie. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, no, all right, okay, I so I didn't think that through. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've never had the pleasure of uh, departing an aircraft uh, unexpectedly. Right. I guess I skydove. I skydiving. That doesn't count. That that's yeah, that's organized chaos. That is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, listen, uh, we couldn't have written the segue any better. Uh, talking about great stories, uh, just like the military. This next segment is coming to us uh, from Reno. Now, we actually recorded this back in June of 2022. Uh, it was meant to air out for the Women in Aviation show, but. Uh, but it's just, again, too good to to just kind of hang on to. So this is an interview that I recorded with Vicky Benting. Now, Vicky had an extremely successful career in technology. And then once she retired, she pursued a career as a professional pilot where she performs in air shows across the country. Now, in, mo in both careers, she was often one of the only leading women, which led to some pretty interesting stories. Now, she uh, was born and raised in California. She's an accomplished pilot, skydiver, aerobatic performer, and air racer with almost 10,000 hours of flight time, 1,300 parachute jumps. She has a passion for everything airborne. And now her flying career has spanned nearly 40 years, and she does hold an airline transport pilot rating as well as commercial ratings in helicopters, seaplanes, and gliders. Um, during her 24-year uh, career in semiconductors, uh, or the production of semiconductors, um, Vicky started taking some aerobatic um, flights with uh, air show legend Wayne Hanley, and, and she actually began her own aerobatics show. Um, she does have a, uh, 
a Boeing Stearman that she flies around the country at air shows, as well as a newly acquired P-51 Mustang. Yes, Vicky owns a Mustang. Um, and her and her husband, Jeff, actually own a couple different airplanes. But in, in addition to aerobatics, Vicky, as you're going to hear, got the racing bug when a friend invited her to come play over at Reno. And um, in her first year of racing, which is pretty impressive, she was um, announced Rookie of the Year after having won her first race ever in her first event. Um, in 2015, she did become the fastest woman racer ever at the Reno Air Race uh, in a uh, in a jet qualifying in at 469 miles per hour. Um, so there you go. Uh, listen to this interview, which is about 20 minutes long, and uh, let's get to know Vicky. All right. Vicky, well, first of all, for real, we've been trying to do this for about two years, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sorry, I'm so hard to tie down. <laughs> this is, well, that's a good thing, and I guess I just want to start out with, in the as the new guy at Reno, having only been here six years, one of the things why I've wanted to interview you is because I see you as such a, a well respected pilot here, and you're kind of a you're a mentor to everybody. And it, I know when I showed up here, I was not intimidated by you, but um, oh my god, but I certainly was <laughs> impressed at how the class. Um, views Vicky Benzing. So I've been wanting to pin you down for a couple years now to get this because I want to get your experience. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I was a rookie once too, right? <laughs> I mean, we're all rookies yeah. at some point and we all have to learn and and learn our craft, learn our trade and it takes time and um, you know, it's, it's I guess a great honor that that the guys around me respect yeah. my flying, so um, well, that I couldn't ask for more. And and we're, we'll jump right into it. So you started from an you kind of came from an aviation family in California, right? Right. Yeah, my uncle was a, a crop duster, and he actually raced at the Reno Air Races back in 1966-67 in the sport biplane division. And he was a air show pilot. He had one of the very first pit specials, and I was just a little kid. I looked up to him, and he took me for my first airplane ride at, at an age when I really didn't know if those were toy houses and toy cars or yeah. if those were real houses and real cars out on the road. And, and that had a big impression on me, and I think um, we don't realize that small things have big impressions on other people around us. And it was, that we do. and that was just something you felt the first time you took the controls. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The first time I took the controls flying, um, it was, it, I just knew I wanted to do this for my whole life. Yeah. It was a passion and, and, uh, everything else in my life might come and go, but flying would always stay. Yeah. I would always fly. So at that time, did you make it your, your life? Did you make it? <laughs> well, um, I, I would have liked to have learned to fly when I was 14 or 16 or 17, but I didn't. I learned to fly when I was in graduate school. Oh. And one of my, uh, my uncle was a pilot, but I didn't really think that I could do it. I mean, we came from modest means and, um, nobody put an airplane in my hand. And, and so, um, it wasn't until one of my buddies asked me if I wanted to go skydiving and I said yes and fell in love with <laughs> skydiving and was out jumping every weekend and around the airplanes that I realized that I had to learn to fly. 
I just I knew that I had to learn to fly. So I talked to my parents, and my dad had a, a friend who let me learn to fly in his 1941 Taylor Craft. Oh wow! On the coast in Watsonville, and I had to pay for the fuel and the instructor. And um, I was in school at the time, so I could afford two lessons a week, and I would drive down from Berkeley to walk Watsonville and take two lessons on every Saturday. And <laughs> <laughs> that's how I got my license. So, yeah. so you, so you went to school. You, you went to graduate school, but you ended up with a PhD in chemistry, right? Right. So I was working on my PhD in chemistry, yeah. and um, and funny enough, I had gone through my orals when I before I started skydiving, and and on my first free fall, I had a malfunction, uh-huh. and um, and at that time, we jumped the military surplus gear, the big round yeah. parachutes, C-9 and the belly mount yeah. reserves, and and I had it in the capo cutaways, right, I had to cut away the parachute, and pull the reserve, and, and I landed on the ground, and the instructor put another parachute on me, and sent me right back up, and, and you know, <laughs> before I could get scared, and, and so... But after that, you know, I sat down and I was like, man, I saved my own life. Yeah. <laughs> How cool is that? And, and now all of a sudden, nothing was scary. <laughs> yeah. Because, because, like, I'd had the scariest thing, and I survived. <laughs> and, um, and that really sort of changed my attitude about myself and the things that I found scary in graduate school and the people that I found intimidating. And, and, um, and I think also, I, so, so that's what got me interested in learning to fly and and I think also learning to fly also gave me a tremendous amount of self-confidence to be able to you know operate the airplane go fly somewhere be responsible for it yeah. and, and come back and land and be safe and and I, I really think that for young people that learning to fly is just such a great thing because it's just this confidence builder that you don't necessarily have as a young person yeah. um that is a huge barrier, right, to, yeah. to aviation is, can I do that? Can I solo an airplane? Can I really be a pilot? But you, so I'm, I don't recommend everybody go skydiving and have a parachute malfunction to, <laughs> as a no, confidence no, no. builder. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so you had this defining moment, and and so how how can people build that self-confidence? And and I imagine this was in your in your non-aviation career as well as in aviation. How can somebody improve self-confidence? And, and so I, I just talked to this young woman at an air show last a uh, couple weekends ago at Hillsborough, and you know I think it's really hard for young women now with social media. You know everybody's you know writing critical things about, and there's this whole certain image you have to have and all. Uh, I think that the way to build self-confidence is to set goals for yourself and go achieve goals. You know, nobody can give you self-confidence. They can't tell you you're good at something or you're pretty or whatever to give you self-confidence. But if you start setting goals for yourself, and they can be just small goals, mm-hmm. if, as you achieve those goals, you build more confidence that you can achieve more. And um, I think that uh, is... For me, that was really uh, the path to my self-confidence was, you know, setting goals, achieving goals, and building along the way. Mm. You know, some of those things were, of course, slowing an airplane, right, get my pilot's license, get my degree, get my PhD. And, and my experience at Berkeley, 
I was, I thought I was really smart coming out of Davis, <laughs> and then I went to Berkeley to grad school, and I thought, oh my God, you know, like, um, <laughs> well, I just felt really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody was smart. Everybody was smart. And then, then the professors were, you know, they were like Nobel laureates and stuff, and yeah. you were just like this little small pebble. <laughs> and um, and I think that I didn't really get that self-confidence in myself as a as a scientist until I graduated from Berkeley and I went and did a postdoc and they're like oh you went to graduate school at Berkeley yeah <laughs> and and, um, and so and then we got to build a lab and we had some money we we built experiments and um, we published papers and I, I really grew as a scientist then and then I went off and got my first job, and, and I had a career in Silicon Valley and, mm -hmm. and all that. But um, but building confidence is a path, right? I mean, it's you don't just do it with the one thing. You it's a path you go yeah. on, and and it happens with time. You know, and you have to grow, grow, and <laughs> age helps, yeah. perspective helps. <laughs> uh, and related to that, what kind of people did you surround yourself with, right? So I, I mean, we all have these people that that either boost us up or drag us down. So was that something that you purposely sought out, was surrounding yourself with people that supported you and, and gave you that confidence, or did you have those people also that, well, that think, humbled you, or did the, aviation, yeah, or did well, the airplane do that? <laughs> yeah, no, well, you know, I mean, I think I think you have friends that support you, right? And those that's why they're your friends, is mm -hmm. because you all support each other, and if they're if they're not supportive of you, they probably shouldn't be your friend. Um, but I also think you have people in your life that, that don't necessarily support you, maybe even drag you down, or they challenge you, right? And, and you know, a good example of that are, are people in, at work, people at, at your professors at school. Um, they may be demanding. They may not be supportive. Mm -hmm. They may just ex have expectations, and maybe you can meet them, and maybe you can't. And um, in you... You can't let that stuff get you down. I think um, you have you have to learn to pick yourself up and carry on. Mm -hmm. And and even with flying, I mean, stuff's going to happen. Your parachute's going to malfunction. You got to pick yourself up and carry on. Yeah, yeah. Don't let it get you down. So in aviation, this has traditionally been, you know, a, a man's world, um, and you were in aviation and. You know, in the, a time when yeah, there were hardly right? any female voices on the radio. So how did you? How <laughs> but did I was you in do? science too, and there were very few women in yeah. in, in the hard sciences um, at the time. So how did I deal with it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I never I, honestly, I never thought of myself as anything different than the boys. Mm -hmm. um, I was a tomboy when I was growing up, and you know, I was. Th often the ringleader in my little group of boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just never thought of myself as anything different um, as one of the boys. Yeah. And even here, I, I don't. And when, when, when I realize that maybe some of the guys are teasing each other about the girl beating them, it kind of hurts my feelings because I, I really do feel like I'm one of the boys. Yeah. And, and, it, uh, and there's, a, there's a generational difference there's a cultural difference in aviation i've seen you know 22 years in the air force you see the entire gamut of of cultures and some are positive and some are negative um 
but here, and here is, we're in Reno, we're sitting here on the ramp in, in, uh, in Stead Airport. It's very male. <laughs> it is very male dominated. Um, all leadership positions are, are men. Um, no, I'm secretary of the Jets. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Rara, yeah, you know, there's, there's very few women, but you are, again, you're just one of the most respected women here. Not even women, you're one of the most respected pilots here. And I'm going to dime him out because I'm, I'm really good friends with George, but George Catalano uh, respects you to the to the end of, of this world. And we we actually talk about you um, <laughs> because he, as a fellow race pilot, he does look up to you. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this, but... <laughs> no, but he wants to beat me, though. <laughs> <laughs> he does want to beat you, but in order to do that, he studies everything that you do on the course, your lines and everything, and he, he will tell us that nobody flies a better line than Vicky. Really? Um, he absolutely, <laughs> absolutely looks up to your, your aviation skills. I was lucky that I got trained by Lee Bill, yeah. and he spent a lot of time with me on teaching me the lines of the race course, and I got to ride with him on the race course, yeah. and I, I've got to ride with quite a few really good pilots yeah. and, um, and learn the course, so I, I don't know if I have a really good line, but so far I'm past <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, and that was proven yesterday in the silver, or not yesterday, last, last year, year in the silver. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, that's funny yeah. <laughs> how, how I ended up top of the silver. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but one of the things that I love about sport class, too, is it's a collaborative environment. Everybody knows that the sport class has to succeed, and, and we are uh, one of the pillars of, of the Reno Air Races and whatever that evolves to in the future. But I, I personally just love it when Jeff Lavelle and Andy Finley jump in an airplane together and they go fly around the course, you know, and, and, and folks that are competitive by and large in this class with a few exceptions are all here to support each other as a class. Right. Um, It's the camaraderie of the class that I really love. Yeah. Sports will always be home for me. Yeah. So I guess kind of switching over to your aerobatics, um, cause you, you do aerobatics in a air show performances in an extra and the steerman, right? Yep. yep. And an upcoming... Yep. And the Mustang. And the Mustang. <laughs> yeah. Not yet, but yeah, that's in, in the works. So yeah. what is that? Now, and, and you've had some, some great pioneers, you know, the, the Patty Wagstaffs of, of the world that have established women as a force in aerobatics. Oh, yeah. And, and generally, women, there are not many women, but they're at the top level. Yeah. The ones that are at the top level. Yeah. And it, uh, two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to fly uh, the Hillsborough Air Show, was, which was an all-woman air show. And there were two F-35s, a Navy and, a, and an Air Force F-35, both flown by women. Mm-hmm. F-18, F-16 flown by women. Helicopter crews, uh, C-130 crews, all women. Lots, lots and lots of uh, female aviators at the show. Yeah. Fewer civilian women and and unfortunately uh, there were a couple of the top women in the world that were going to attend the show but uh, like Svetlana Kapanina mm-hmm. but uh, out of Russia but but the war in Ukraine yeah. kind of <laughs> put the kibosh on that yeah. <laughs> so to speak <laughs> yeah and so and I've and I've seen just um, I think this last weekend there was a picture of, uh, of an F-35 and F-16 and the uh, F-18 demo pilots 
uh, were all um, flying together, and they were all piloted by women. Um, oh yeah, and the the heritage flight. Yeah, yeah, and the commercial that the Air Force shows before Top Gun. Yep. That that demo in that F thirty five is flown by a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when I was in the Air Force, we were slowly creeping up to the twenty percent mark of, of women aviators. Um, and I think that's even closer to thirty percent now. That's huge. Um, so it's it's that it's is, pretty significant. I think the yeah. Air Force has always been on the on the leading edge of uh, both women and minorities um, integration. You know, all the way back to the fifties, we've, we've they have been really really on the cutting edge of that, with some challenges along the way, obviously. But um, so one of the questions that I wanted to ask you: So you, you've been around aviation for for a couple decades now. What what have you seen? Are there more opportunities for women? Are there less barriers, different barriers? Um, I guess compared to your upbringing mm-hmm. and women now. Well, I think I think there's more women in aviation, and I think that um, in fields where where there are women, more women see that they can do it, and so more women join. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think in that way, the barrier is lowered. Um, but w- women. You know, I think women have uh, have some some challenges that men don't have. In that, let's face it, women are the childbearers, mm-hmm. right? So, so if a woman wants to have a career in aviation, she kind of has to choose between having a family and a career. Mm-hmm. Now, that's like not totally true. Back when I was like coming in through grad school, I mean, you had a career or you had a family. But now you see women have both. And uh, I have a friend who's the very first female fighter pilot in the U.S. Her name's Janine Levitt. Mm -hmm. And she has a beautiful family. And she's a great example of you can have it both, but you may have to, you know, plan the timing of it. I think for the the female military aviators, you know, they have to get themselves established in their career before they can take the time off to have a family. And it's it's not that much different for women in industry as well. You know, if mm-hmm. you're going to establish a career, you go and work for a number of years before you take the time off to have a family. And 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 women are always going to have you know they're always going to be the mothers and have their attention divided between their careers and right. raising their children. So that's a that's a in a way that men don't have. So that will always be a challenge. I think forever. I mean, it's just biology. Yeah. Unless the incubate incubate them, and <laughs> somebody else raises them. Well, there was that Sylvester Stallone movie, right? Yeah, the Oscar uh, where he has a kid. Yeah, but I I do think there's more there's more opportunities in general, and 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 all, you know, it, it's all open to women. So there's plenty of opportunities mm-hmm. for women in aviation, and it's um, I don't know. I just love to see the fact that there's just so many women joining the ranks of aviators. Yeah. Yeah. So you personally, you've got a partnership with California Aeronautical University, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. um, so, what what does that what does that partnership look like? Do you get to mentor uh, all kinds of young people? And um, you know? yeah, so I represent the university. They're mm-hmm. my sponsor for the, my air show business, for yeah. lack of a better word. Um, and I I get to interact with. I, I interact with the students at the shows. Um, they come and support the shows usually as a recruiting mm-hmm. tool. 
um, I get to go to their commencement exercise. I've been a commencement speaker. Um, they have promotional ceremonies when the kids get their pilot's license or their commercial certificate or their instrument or instructor ratings. And, and I'll, I'll attend some of those ceremonies and the parents will come. And it's just, to me, it's just so cool to see yeah. how proud the parents are of their, their kids as they oh, progress through the, the program. It's a really great program. The kids get a four-year degree in three years because they go all year round. They complete, uh, they complete all their ratings through flight instructor in the first 18 months. And then the second 18 months, they're instructing the younger students while they're finishing their coursework. So they're building hours for, for a job in the airlines or whatever, yeah. whatever flying job they're going to get. And, um, and they're earning money along the way. So uh, it's just it's a great program. And, and you can tell... You can tell what a good program it is because kids are excited yeah. and happy, and you know they're not learning. <laughs> but uh, they get a lot of flying, so yeah, and that's what they have, that's what they want to do. People that are going into the into aviation largely already have a love for it, coming from somewhere, right? right? Some right. kind of influence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing for people, for all all young people but especially women and, and minorities and underrepresented um, demographics, what kind of organizations can they seek out to get this kind of mentorship, this kind of, you know, you can do it, you know, how, is it as easy as just show up to your local airport? Or <laughs> Well, I do think, you know, pilots want to make new pilots. Yeah. We want to see what we love get perpetuated. So, so yeah, it's, it, it is as easy as showing up at your local airport or or participating in some of the the young eagles or mm-hmm. EAA programs they always have summer camps and you know young eagles flights and those kinds of things and there's local chapters for EAA all over the country yeah and um, civil air patrol too yeah civil air patrol my cousin my, one of my cousins was in civil air patrol and um, so I think those are all great programs even um, International Aerobatic Club. I mean, they all, they run contests. They need they need volunteers to help, and it's a good way to see what the sport's about and watch some fancy flying. Yeah. And um, yeah, so any of the pilot organizations, I would say, would be, be most airports have local pilot yeah. organizations, and and most of the local pilot organizations and most of the EAA chapters and and AOPA and women in aviation and all these organizations they all offer scholarships for learning to fly and if you do some research on the internet it should be pretty easy to find scholarships both you know from national organizations and also local pilot organizations and um if you haven't if you have an interest in learning to fly you know go look on the internet yeah search that out because because there are dollars out there to help you yeah, that's license. and that's a huge yeah. barrier to be honest nowadays is is, is so cost expensive. Of it, yeah. yeah, and it, it hasn't gotten easier with price gas. Yeah, <laughs> nope. So yeah, gosh, I remember. Uh, I remember when I was uh, up in, or I had a job up in Oregon, and the little airport across the river, they were renting 
one of their little Aroncas for like $14 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> $14 yeah, an hour wet. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> that's uh, so cheap. <laughs> oh my gosh, that doesn't even pay for the oil no. in an hour right now. Yeah, I don't know if they actually made a profit or they just wanted to get people to fly. <laughs> but, yeah. but um, yeah. So, it um, definitely costs a lot more now. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and and uh, and we talk about that on the show quite a bit about the rising cro- cost. He, now, this is a UK-based podcast, so here in the U.S. is while it's expensive, it's not nearly as expensive as our European partners in in Australia and and our, our folks in in India and South Africa that travel to European countries or maybe even come to the U.S. You, just, that's right. A lot of people yeah. come to the U.S. to get their pilot's license because it is cheaper here. Yeah. You see, you see quite a lot of that. Yeah, and um, I think it's probably worth it. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get one of our co-hosts here to actually come over to the U.S. and just finish his because he's been working on his PPL over in Europe or in, in the U.K. for uh, years now. So I'm just like, just come to the U.S. and just you can, you can actually do both in some flight schools. I think American Flyers mm-hmm. will give you an FAA PPL, but then they'll also give you your EASA exams. So so you can kind of do both at the same time. But I remember I went over to England and rented an airplane to go flying around, and and the cost was like the same as renting a helicopter here. Yeah, I mean it's just that much more expensive. Yeah, I, I yeah. used to fly a Cub in East Anglia, in eastern part of England, and it was about three hundred US dollars an hour. Oh my gosh! Yeah, wow. but you're it's a beautiful country, and you're, you're <laughs> at you know five hundred feet, and there's castles and churches and manor homes and hedgerows and. Uh, there's yeah. nothing like it. Yeah, these are the experiences, really, that you, you, you know, no price. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, Priceless. I want to finish with one question. It's going to be a total curveball. I didn't, I didn't prep you for this one on purpose. Um, and I can't believe I'm asking this question of somebody that owns a P-51 Mustang, a legit one. Um, but we always finish with, if there is any airplane in the world, past, present, future, that I wanted that, to fly? That you wanted to fly. Oh. What would that airplane be? It would be the space shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer for somebody who owns a Mustang. Awesome. Uh, well, well, we may not get that chance anymore, huh? I guess we can I guess not. <laughs> chair fly it at the Smithsonian. Well, but maybe, you know, they're sending other things up. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Vicki, so much. You're so welcome. It's so great to talk to you. I'm really <laughs> right. See you guys. Well, that was an awesome interview, guys. And uh, what she didn't say in any of that, that she's actually also flown in a bunch of films and TV shows. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Carlos, you, you've probably watched all these TV shows, but but she actually flew her uh, Stearman. She flew some jets in the movie uh, Mercury 13. She's flown what? in Ice. Yeah, she flew in Ice Pilots, um, which was a show on Discovery. She flew uh, some of the air scenes in NCIS LA. Oh, wow. Um, uh. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and and most recently, she was featured um, just in the uh, fall issue of uh, Flying Magazine. Her her Stearman is the uh, the very first you know sort of um, two page spread in there. So uh, I I can't wait to hear more from Vicky as the years goes along. And uh, and you know what? We'll actually um, we'll get her on the show. We we'll, we can get her on the show, and 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 she was nothing but nice to us 
this uh, this year at Reno, and she took some uh, just a lovely picture with Maddie this year at, at oh. Reno. But um, anyway, let's talk a little bit about the people that support this show, Carlos. Ooh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, time to say a big thanks to everyone who supports the show every month with Patreon. And uh, I'll, I'll give never break there this uh, this month. I'll do these <laughs> months. So we've got uh, through Patreon. Uh, the link is on our website. You can click on that so you can find it on our website. But we've got to thank this month uh, Logan Lynch, Alex Robinson, uh, Dirk S., Sasha Beer, Stephen Ivey, Nicholas Codling, Louis Caceres. Oh, I can never pronounce this one, Armando. Help me out here. Luis Caceres. Thank you very much. <laughs> Alan White, Stephen Howland, Tanya Wyman, Nicholas Hewitt, Masha Gertz, Ruben Wells, uh, Neil Lamorne, Graham Haley. Uh, Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, Liz Piper, Jenny uh, Parkinson, Evan Shue, Shut Backer, Ray Williams, and Stephanie Plummer, aka Dr. Steph. And our PayPal uh, donators for the uh, through the PayPal means, uh, we say thank you to Craig Urosko. Thank you to you, Craig, uh, for your kind donation. Richard Adams. Uh, Tony Stubbings and also big thanks to Mazuz Karim as well thanks to one and all to everyone who helped support the show because it really really does help there are there's been a few instances in the last few months where we've had to um buy some few more bits of tech equipment for uh, for Matt and I think you've got your ears on something else I think Matt haven't you in the audio realms of the studio I think haven't you you want to uh, have a look at oh do I yeah, something to do with the audio, wasn't it, from Zoom and all the other bits and pieces? Oh yeah, we're yeah we're trying to just improve the quality from, from yeah. Zoom, so we're looking at some yeah. options for that. So thanks to everyone for your kind donations. We all, as a team, very much appreciate it as well. Thank you ever so much indeed. So there we go. Indeed, there we go. Uh, right, uh, well that's pretty much it then, Carlos. Shall we? Um, shall we wrap up? Yeah, we'll wrap up the show for this week. So we're going to have a look at social media platforms. If you don't already follow us, get yourselves over to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, you can search for us on there, Plain Talking UK. Uh, don't forget that lovely, shiny, glossy WhatsApp number, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. If you want to send a picture uh, to go on the green screens behind me and Matt here uh, in the uh, in the studios, uh, you can email the show podcast at plain talking uk.com we'd love to have some feedback from you have you loved the uh, interview series that uh, we're currently playing out with chris burwell if you have send us an email send us a voice message uh you can send that via the whatsapp number or via that email number and also the website all the w's dot plain talking uk.com is the website where you'll find info on all of us as a team you'll also find all the links on there to paypal patreon and the store as well where you can catch yourself some PTUK merchandise if you so fancy. And there's also a little link on there for Amazon if you're doing your shopping this weekend, as I will probably be at some point, to buy some cat food. Uh, you can <laughs> click on that link and grab yourself uh, some some bargains on Amazon and it also helps us with a little referral fee as well that we get on the show. Indeed. So that's all we've got time for for episode 428, our special episode this week. We hope you've enjoyed all the content on the show uh, for tonight. So take care, 
everyone. Have a great weekend from me, Carlos, here at home in the studio, from Matt in the PTK Master Suite Studios, from Nev in his glorious countryside Buckinghamshire manor, <laughs> and from Armando in the windswept <laughs> Carolinas. Take care. Say goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a good week. Bye.